0: Well, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. We are here today with Captain Michael Nayak. He was a research section chief at the Air Force Maui Optical and Supercomputing Site. He is now an experimental flight test engineer and went kitesurfing in Antarctica. In three, two, one. So, um... Before we kind of cut into everything, um, the big crux of the story here we're going to be telling is that you went down to the uh, South Pole to do some amazing work. And um, we heard after an interview you did beforehand that there was wind sailing involved.
1: There was, yes. You know, uh, so one of the things about optical astronomy, which is, uh, uh, and we'll talk about this, uh, what I went down to the South Pole to do is you really want the air to be nice and still. All right. So, you know, the second there's a lot of wind, snow starts getting kicked up. Um, You know, you get your whiteout conditions, and then it's just no fun to do astronomy. So what do you do when you're not working at the South Pole? Uh, It's not like you can go down to Starbucks and kick your feet up. So it's windy. (laughs) So why not take advantage of the wind? Uh, So one of the things that um, me and a couple of other folks did while we're down there is, uh, so coming from Maui, uh, which is where my assignment with the research lab was at the time, uh, we did a lot of kite surfing. And so uh, when the wind kicked up, we basically would take a kite surfing kite and a snowboard. And we've got, you know, a ton of snowboard and skis out there. And uh, we go a line up with the wind and try to run back and forth uh, across the South Pole. So there's the ceremonial South Pole. So there's just a nice open space there. So we just try to go back and forth and see how far we could get with the wind. And, um, and then when the wind died down, well, then it's back to work.
0: <laughs> That's amazing, though. So, uh, what was your record then? I guess the the longest record someone had for kite surfing.
1: Oh boy, uh, you know, I don't know what the longest ever was. I could tell you my personal best was a quarter mile, which quarter the winds mile. were. Ho- so, but the trick is, see, and here's the thing about you know, and if anybody kite surfs and is listening to this, they know this already. It's real easy to go one way with the wind. It's not so easy to turn around and come back. So, you could really go for miles, uh, but at some point. <laughs> You want to get enough steam that you can sort of do this turn and then tack up wind. And so that's the real skill. And so the most that I was able to tack up wind and come back was a quarter mile.
0: That's impressive. So I imagine that wasn't, you said, too common, or there was quite a few times you were able to
1: kind of hone your skills down there? I, I, I You know, a handful of times, unfortunately, okay. just because of time constraints. Or what. But, you know, it's always daylight. So when it's windy, as long as you, you know, have the time and the equipment handy um you can go do it That sounds like a lot of fun it, it was great i'm not gonna lie uh you want to cover every inch of your skin because that wind will bite but you know it was pretty great <laughs> Ooh, yeah uh, it's pretty <laughs> great to kite surf at maui and then windsurf at the pole i will say that see it's cool you already had some skills there so it was transplantable
0: well let's
1: just say <laughs> that there's less people at the south pole so there were less people to see me eat it
0: <laughs> hey that's fair um so uh, kind of going uh, a little ahead, though, jumping back to what you're doing now. Um, so correct
1: me if I'm wrong, but you're practicing right now in flight? So at the moment, I am a uh, flight test engineer with the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School. And actually, um, this year is the 75th year of test pilot school. So the school is actually older than the Air Force. My my job now is to be a flight test engineer. Uh, so two days ago, I got to backseat in an F-16, and we ran a, a test at supersonic speeds on some weapons delivery, so that's that's my job right now. is I'm I'm a student at uh, Test Pilot School, learning to be an experimental flight test engineer, and then so it's back to school again, <laughs> and uh, and then by the end of this year, at the 75th anniversary of Test Pilot School, there will be 24 of us that will be test pilots and test engineers testing the the new generation of aircraft for the Air Force. That is amazing. So was
0: this something you naturally saw uh, happening with your career path? Or did this kind of find itself uh, when you came
1: back from Antarctica? Well, uh, I, so I've, you know, I've always been I've always wanted to go to test pilot school. Uh, and in, in a lot of ways, uh, that was part of my motivation for for joining the Air Force. You know, just and this is just going back to, you know, that that amazing book, The Right Stuff. Right. If, if you've read that book, it's it's all about the Mercury seven astronauts. And the, the first half of the book is about their time at at test pilot school. And I thought to myself, wow. This place sounds amazing. It's where you basically go and and, and there's a saying that a uh, test pilot school's average day is an average pilot's worst day, and I thought to myself that that sounds like the kind of place that I would like to go be a part of. And now that I'm here, it's 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 absolutely amazing. So that's something I, I wanted to try and get to in my career at some point. Uh, but I have been fortunate that in the meantime I was able to develop my you know scientific credentials as well, uh, and that's what took me to Antarctica. So I would say that. Actually, they're they're kind of on two opposite ends of the spectrum. My old yeah. job? Uh, yeah, so the Antarctica thing is all the way over in like basic research, right? We're fundamental techniques and we're really uh, just a step past theory, like equations. And then test is all the way at the other end of the spectrum where you have this one of a kind prototype. and your job as the test pilot and the test engineer is to make sure that it is safe to build a hundred of these. And when regular pilots and regular engineers start flying in them, they're not going to go kill themselves. So it's the, the other end of the development spectrum.
0: Well, that's awesome. So working at both ends then, do you have one that you'd say you'd prefer? or Is there kind of things about both you really enjoy? The
1: skills of one apply to the other. And in fact, I think this is part of the reason why uh, Test Pilot School is such a unique organization. They are right at the edge of development, right? They're, it's almost uh, a product that's out there to the warfighter. However, they have a strict focus on research because it's like this is the last gate to clear and we really want to find out as much about the system as possible so i would say that as opposed to having just tests and just researchers uh, test pilot school is really this unique place where the two meet in the middle and that's why i'm just i'm thrilled to be here Uh, so it's it's skills for both i think you wouldn't be a very good tester if you didn't understand the research and the theory And you're not a very good researcher if you don't know what the user wants. That's amazing. That's really cool. Uh, So kind of touching
0: on that then, um, you're talking about how you've been looking forward to doing this position for some time. Um, Going back to uh, when you were in Antarctica, uh, how did you feel when you were initially offered that position?
1: Oh, incredibly excited. Uh, I would say that was another dream come true. The South Pole is such a unique place. It is hard to get to. And that's you know for for good reason it's remote it's dangerous but there's also th- there's a mission there and, it, and that mission is scientific research and so to get there you have to prove to the national science foundation um, and just as a bit of background the national science foundation runs the entire u.s antarctic program so you have to convince the nsf that your research is not only nsf quality but also that it can only be accomplished or can be accomplished better at the South Pole than anywhere else in the world. When I found out that that we were that our project Landit, had been selected, I was I was absolutely thrilled and excited. And that project is still continuing.
0: Oh, very nice. Yeah, actually, touching on that, so talking about Landit since you mentioned it, um, can you kind of explain that for our viewers, like what the Landit project covered and what your goals are
1: doing the basic research you did? Absolutely. So I think landed in one line, and, and I'll, I'll explain this in just a moment, is can we apply established uh, what we call astroseismology techniques to Jupiter and Saturn? And once we build the right tools there, can we then apply them to the interior of satellites, which is something that the Air Force is interested in. So what does all of that mean? What it means is that there is seismic activity, within stars and we've known this for a while there are these things called pulsating stars and they pulsate because there's action that's occurring in the interior so the basic theory if you want to think about it is that interior processes dominate exterior observables so if you're looking at a star from the outside you don't necessarily need to delve into its interior physically to know what's happening there the basic theory is that there are waves that are propagating inside the star causing it to pulsate, right? And those waves are modified by whatever they pass through. So by the way that those waves are modified, we can tell something about the interior. And guess what? That's exactly what we do for earthquakes, right? We can detect earthquakes around the world from where they occurred. And that's actually a good thing because so let's say there's an earthquake in Japan and we have a observing station in California. There is value in observing those waves in California, because they have on their way across the earth, they go over, but they also go through the earth to get to California. And as they transit through the interior of the earth, they're modified by the interior of the earth. And that's actually how we found out a lot about what the interior of the earth looks like without actually having been there. So we decided, so that's seismology. And then there's helio or astro seismology, which is basically doing the same thing on stars. And so what we'd like to do, what Landed is trying to do, is to observe Jupiter and Saturn, which are gas giants. So they fun- function a lot like stars. So we understand the physics of stars. We want to apply that to learning more about the interiors of Jupiter and Saturn, our largest neighbors. Uh, and that's what the NSF is interested in as well. But then for the Air Force, we'd like to see, well, okay, so we've established this theory by which the interior, whatever's in the interior, modifies the signal on the exterior How about applying that to satellites? Can we tell something about the interior of satellites? So to return to my one line, which hopefully now makes a little more sense, what is landed? Can we apply astroseismology techniques to Jupiter and Saturn? And once we build the right tools there, apply them to the interior of satellites.
0: That's perfect. That makes uh a lot of sense honestly so that's one of those things that um when you explain to somebody at first it can be uh, difficult to grasp but honestly with the especially with the earthquake analogy that's very easy to follow
1: oh absolutely the interior physics are a little bit different for earth versus satellites versus jupiter but the principle is the same right you can use exterior observables to glean knowledge about the object's interior in other words you don't need to see into it you just need to see it whether that object is a star a planet or a satellite. That's the bigger picture. And part of it is we're hoping to prove that equivalence.
0: Definitely, yeah. And you said the uh, research that you've
1: now left is still continuing? That's correct. So this year, uh, I was fortunate enough to go down to the South Pole and set up a small optical telescope. And part of the purpose of that is, you know, the, the pole is a very unique environment. And an optical telescope, so that's the wavelength that your and my eyes see, it's modified by cold, right? There's a ton of things that can go wrong when things get that cold. Your mount can freeze, so now you can't actually look at or track what you want it to track. Uh, If you get ice on the lens, nothing really wants to function that well, right? If it's in the now, if it's a radio telescope, oh, radio telescopes love cold. And in fact, the South Pole has world-class 10-meter radio telescopes there. But there's a reason they don't have optical telescopes and that's because it's really hard to keep those things working so we needed to do some engineering to make sure that we understood how to deploy a telescope to that harsh environment so now that we've learned those lessons next year next austral summer so think november december of 2019 uh, there's going to be another team heading down to the south pole uh the landed team and they're going to field a larger telescope that's actually going to look at Jupiter through the winter, right? So my, I was just there in the summer, which is daytime all the time, nighttime all the time. we're talking, you know, negative 100 Celsius, so south Ooh. of negative 150 Fahrenheit, <laughs> sustained, right? It just gets down there and stays down there. And so those are, those are brutal operating conditions for, I think, just about any piece of equipment, but especially an optical Telescope, But now that we've learned lessons, now we feel confident in trying to take that down there for that long a period and those harsher conditions. So that's what's going to be ongoing in 2019. And then um, hopefully additional analysis and a, a push from basic into applied research in the 2020 and further time frame.
0: Perfect. And um, speaking of the brutal cold, like you mentioned, is that something especially working as much as you did outside? that you became more uh, acclimated to,
1: or just you have good enough gear where it just wasn't a worry? <laughs> that you know, great points. Both. I think it's really personality dependent. I would definitely say uh, <laughs> I born and raised I'm born and raised in California and uh, lived in Hawaii for the last three years. So <laughs> I, I would say that my ability to acclimate is perhaps not what. Another person's ability to acclimate would be, uh, but yeah. definitely you definitely get used to the cold. Um, you know, negative twenty was nothing uh, at Fahrenheit. Negative ten Fahrenheit. Well, that was that was summer weather. That was you know t-shirt <laughs> and no gloves. That was great. <laughs> That's it's um, just so hard to fathom that. Oh yeah. Oh, I, I could. I promise you, when I left Hawaii for Antarctica, I could not even picture what negative seventy-seven Fahrenheit would feel like. Now that I've done it, I can I can fathom it very well, I can picture it pretty vividly.
0: <laughs> so since you mentioned uh, leaving originally, um, so I had uh, uh, one question. I know I asked you this beforehand in a separate kind of interview, but uh, what would you say if you were able to bring down uh, something that you wish you would have known beforehand? Like what else would you pack with you on your first trip?
1: I would have packed more off time stuff. Right. So. I I definitely made sure I wanted to take all of my mission equipment. I wanted to take tools. I wanted to take replacement glass, replacement wedges, replacement wires. And then I packed work clothes and computers and uh, modems and gloves and all of that. And that's great. So that's, you know, 14 hours out of a 24-hour day. What do you do with the rest of the day? So I did not pack anything. Well, Hardly anything, you know, just like pajamas or stuff to hang out in cards would have been nice, you know, just, um, <laughs> yeah, just, I, I packed very practically, definitely yeah. had all the work stuff, had all the, you know, equipment, but didn't really think about the personal aspect of it.
0: And you're right. That is important. Um, that was a big question we thought about too, which was, um, outside of, you know, uh kite surfing and, kind of hanging out with the crew like what did you guys do for downtime or like when you were in that kind of isolated environment how did you kind of keep yourself uh, entertained well i think the poll does
1: a pretty good job of that as far as facilities go so it is nice it's one building so they do a good job of trying to provide you with <laughs> some measure of entertainment so for example there is a quiet reading room which has a library oh nice they have a yeah there's a a lounge area with a pool table and darts and sofas and video games. And there's another like movie theater type room, which you can basically make dark and there's sofas and you can watch movies or play video games. So there's also a greenhouse where you can go if you've just forgotten how plants smell, which does happen. there There are no trees on Antarctica. so after a while, you start to forget what, Green grass smells like and that kind of thing, what humidity feels like. So they That's have a fair. room for that. <laughs> yeah. So it's a hydroponic room because there's no soil allowed in Antarctica because uh, it's foreign, right? It's a uh, pollutant. So you can go in this room and it's very humid, warm, and sort of sit there and just people nap there for an hour or two. So yeah, th- th- there are some facilities, there's books, movies, video games, places to hang out. Uh, so that, that part is very nice.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. Um, speaking of those other uh, nice options you have, um, were there any fun traditions that um teams of the South Pole have in terms of
1: initiation or anything like that that you got to enjoy? Terrific question. And just like uh, I would say, like a fighter squadron in the Air Force, the South Pole is steeped in traditions. Traditions, you know, that have been born from I would say shared hardship. So a lot of the traditions are certainly focused on the winter, right? Because you got eight months of darkness. Uh, no one can come and go. There's no airplanes. There's no, like, you're stuck with who you're stuck with. And so uh, a lot of the traditions to the South Pole center around that bonding experience, which I haven't experienced. However, there were several great traditions of the summer. The big ones are obviously Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I, I was there for Thanksgiving. And, you know, I mean, the station goes all out, right? Uh, holidays are a chance to get together with your pole family because your real family isn't there and and celebrate. So Thanksgiving was a great one. In the winter, there is a version of what's called a 300 club, <laughs> which is when it gets down to negative 100 degrees centigrade. You can, there's a sauna in the pole building. So you can warm up to 200 there and then run outside. Oh, and it's negative 100 outside. So I did not experience that because it never got down to a negative 100 C. But I did get to do sort of the 220 Fahrenheit Club, which is it, you get in the sauna and it's pretty warm, and then you run outside and it's negative 50 Fahrenheit. So that was a shock. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And then other than that, uh, I, I would say some of the big like tradition-style things are going into the ice tunnels under the South Pole. And um, and this is where it's really helpful to have a, a cross section of folks that have been there before go with you because they can explain sort of these random things. So in the ice tunnels, uh, folks dig what they call shrines. It's basically you dig a little hole in the ice and you put something there that commemorates your time there. It's a collection from all the folks that were there. And so, you know, you go down with somebody who's like, oh, yeah, I was here in the winter of 1994, and this was our shrine, and this is what that random shoe-in-the-back means. <laughs> so it's both entertainment to go down there and, and, and look through these tunnels that never melt and say, wow, okay, so that's what they were thinking back in 2004. The shrines were a, a nice tradition that I liked. That's, re- I had no idea. That's really interesting. <laughs> so uh, kind of touching on that, then, I know... Um...
0: Uh, you'd mentioned beforehand when I'd asked you kind of about like things you'd brought down, uh, you mentioned something about dark chocolate. So I don't know if that was something you said that was something people really enjoyed down there, or you wish you would have brought more,
1: or uh, what the story oh, yes. was there. Anything new is great, right? Because when you live down at the South Pole and there is no, I mean, everything's frozen, the cooks do a fantastic job trying to resurrect great meal out of frozen food that's been buried in the ice. But, you know, I think we can all agree that there's something missing from that. And so anything new is great, right? And chocolate, food that's that's fresh, so freshies, fruits and vegetables, all of that, you know, you know people go, go nuts for it. It's like, um, it's the novelty of it. So certainly one thing that helped me is to barter for <laughs> is, <laughs> hey, dark chocolate. And I was lucky, um, some friends of mine really helped me out and mailed me just more chocolate than I could possibly eat. I love chocolate, so. Uh, hey, same, I, I agree. Yeah, so uh, I, there was just more that I could feasibly eat during my time there. Uh, so it was a great way to you know, break the ice, make some friends, trade for something maybe. So that was the story of, I, I, I found dark chocolate to be a very effective currency. There no, is, that's, that's great funny you mentioned this, we actually had a question about uh, freshies.
0: So um, I was watching oh, yeah. uh, Anthony uh, Bourdain and he went and visited <laughs> Antarctica, specifically went to McMurdo Station. Right. And um, there was like a, a club there, like some kind of really cool club where they mentioned oh, yes. like vegetables are called freshies, uh, the researchers are called beakers, uh, stuff like uh, that. Like, did you go to the club or was that common?
1: <laughs> yes, definitely. And, and right there, I, I would say, it's one of the major differences between McMurdo and the South Pole. So McMurdo, for those folks that aren't aware, is it's sort of your gateway to Antarctica. That's your first stop. If you're part of the US Antarctic program and you're not going to Palmer Station, which is all the way on the other side of Antarctica, so far, in fact, that you depart from Chile instead of New Zealand. And if you know how far apart South America and New Zealand are, then that gives you an idea of how big Antarctica is. But most people, I would say, come through McMurdo. That's on the coast, right? It's where Amundsen and Scott, the first two men to. Um, to conquer the South Pole, uh, they were on Ross Island, which is where, that's where they started from, and that's where McMurdo is, and that's why it's so big. And so McMurdo is sort of the big town in Antarctica, I would say, if you can call a town of 900 people a big town. Uh, But it's, there are more people there, more uh, supplies readily available, right? Because it's the coast, it's not as cold cold being a relative term, of course. But, you know, planes are able to get in and out for longer. It's not cut off from the world for six months like the pole is. Uh, So you have a lot more, I would say, what you would think of as modern amenities to include entertainment options. (laughs) (laughs) And, and yes, so there is a club there. Uh, There's two bars, actually, as well. So the third one opens up periodically. And in addition to that, right down the street, is Right down the ice, I should say, is the Kiwi Station. Right by McMurdo is Scott Base, which is run by the New Zealanders. And every Thursday, they have American Night.
0: <laughs> oh. So, uh,
1: yeah, so the Americans from McMurdo try to go down and, and hang out with the Kiwis and, you know, drink their alcohol in their bar and then, you know, reciprocate. So, so there's... There's all kinds of options for nightlife, if I'm using that word with quotes, but you get the idea. <laughs> so yeah, uh, and it's great, it's terrific. You go out to the to the club at McMurdo, and you see, you know, maybe 200 people there just sort of kicking back. And so you mentioned the word beakers, which is kind of a a slightly derogatory word for scientists, and because there's two kinds of people in Antarctica, right, uh, for the U.S. Because of the U.S. Antarctic Program, we have science. It's a, it's a scientific research mission. So you've got scientists that are doing that work, like myself, and then you've got support folks. And those folks' job is to basically enable uh, all of the science. So they are the the loggies, the fuelies, the carpenters, the cooks, the bartenders, the all, all of that, all of the, uh, and the. You can think of it like a military base, right? Uh, like an air force base. You've got the pilots who are sort of the the tip of the spear, but then, you know, they don't just fly the airplanes by themselves. There's this whole army, standing army of people that support them. And so that's that's the difference, right? So the beakers are <laughs> the scientists and their postdocs and students and such. And then the, the support staff is, is everybody else. So it's one of the lovely things about the bar is you get everybody's there. There's not really anywhere else to go. So you see all kinds m- mixing together, chatting, friendly rivalries, Trivia—it's—it's it's terrific. Uh, so uh, down at the South Pole, there's not really a bar. There's not really enough people to justify one. It's one building as opposed to a whole sprawling complex. But you know, we have—we have our fun moments. Oh yeah, and I'm glad to hear that you were able to partake
0: in some of that. It sounds like at McMurdo. Oh yeah.
1: No, It's terrific, you know. Weather delays early in the season uh, tend to slow you down, so you'll just as a bit of background the LC 130s, the US Air Force owns the only ski operated aircraft that fly into the South Pole part of bashers. So, if, if you're talking like regular transport, right, it's LC 130s ski operated C 130s and they fly from McMurdo, uh, but they do not like to stay at the pole if they're at the pole and there's weather, they will not shut down the engines because it could get so cold that the fuel lines literally freeze. So they will keep the engines running, and then as soon as they can, they will head back to McMurdo, where they're based. So as a result of that, things are a little more limited at the pole, and so you only go when there's good weather. So I was lucky enough, even though the pole was my destination, uh, to spend three, four days in McMurdo waiting for weather to clear enough for us to get out there. Yeah. And uh, speaking
0: of like flying down in your journey, um, one big thing we know that we especially followed you on was your blog at com slash blog for people who are interested. Um, and that was a big thing that was cool to kind of follow uh, what you did and where you went. So was that your first really big blogging experience or is this something you've done yeah. before?
1: No, no. This is definitely the first time as well. It's just and it it becomes such a it's such a consuming experience, you know? I mean, there's so much prep that goes into it. Uh, once you're down there, you're relatively cut off from the world. And I was a team of one. So I, I knew I would be working all the time. And so I really just wanted a way to try and document this experience, if not for others, then just for myself, in case I never got the opportunity to go back. And so this, I've never blogged before. This is the first time, and it just started off as like, it started off as more of a, a place to document my lessons learned for the team that's going to follow me in 2019, right? They're all newcomers to Antarctica as well. And there's certain lessons that just, you do this once, you learn a lot. And there's just certain things that you would do different. And you go twice, and boy, you you know so much more the, the second time. And then third time, you're really a pro. So they say, uh, just a random segue, actually, this reminds me, they say, the first time you go to Antarctica it's for the adventure. The second time, it's for the money. The third time is because you don't fit anywhere else anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So you you, you learn a lot and you really learn to adapt with your environment, harsh circumstances and and working all the time and that kind of thing. So uh, it started off my blog as a way to just say to the, my co-PI, Ryan Swindle, who will come after me next year to say, hey, before you go, read through this And just sort of figure out some do's and don'ts. And that it sort of just went from there. There were so many unique things I saw and and interesting things and people that I I don't think I would have met or experienced as part of my day-to-day life that I just Wanted a place to store those experiences, and, and that turned into uh, an eighteen-part blog of my experience.
0: Yeah, which is extensive and really well done. And you're right; it's good that you could um set that stage for the rest of your team, because most people, like you mentioned, couldn't fathom that negative seventy-seven
1: degree weather or <laughs> a lot of the tri- or things you had to go through. Absolutely. And now that I'm here, you know, you you mentioned negative seventy-seven. I'm in Southern California right now at Edwards Air Force Base for test pilot school, and it's February. And uh, so, you know, Southern California is pretty warm. It snowed yesterday. There was ice on my windshield this morning and I was shocked and cold. And, <laughs> and, right, right. And my some of my classmates are laughing at me saying, wait a minute, didn't you just come back from Antarctica? And I was like, yes, I did. But, you know, just like you adapt, acclimate to the cold, we talked about that before, <laughs> I acclimated to the warmth. And so just like that, like, so now I'm almost, I feel like if we talk two months from now and you ask me the same question of, how was a negative 77 be like, I don't know, it, it, it was bad. I definitely remember it being bad, but now I, I'm not in it anymore. I'm in plus 77 now. So it's, it's hard for my brain to take itself back to that place. So just while I was in it, I wanted to, to write down the experiences as they were current and just freshest in my mind and hopefully the most useful to anybody else that's either interested or is planning to go down themselves.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And um speaking of, we actually had a few fan questions here we wanted to ask uh near oh, the man. end. Uh was from Sophie C and uh she mentioned um what are some of the best or worst moments while conducting research at the South Pole? So kind of like maybe some certain like specific challenges or
1: triumphs you may have had. Ah, okay. The South Pole is just it is it's it's such a unique place. Uh it, it's unlike oh, I, I've never been to space, but I imagine that that's th- there's some parallels to be drawn there of just isolation and the environment so harsh that uh, that it can punish you if you end up in it that some of your best moments to to answer the first part of Sophie's question some of the best moments are I would say to watch just regular tasks come to life in such a harsh environment and I guess what I'm trying to say is that every win means so much more because you just felt like you fought for it (laughs) like you you braved the elements the, the odds were stacked against you and you still managed to come through. So I would say your best moments while conducting research are where you have really been struggling with something. And it's especially when it's something just simple. A great example is just rotating my telescope into its into its elevation azimuth mount. That's something you just pick up and put it on and fucks with it a little bit and boop, just pops right into the treads. Well, except when it's cold, you have to take your gloves off and touch metal to do that. Ooh. And, and, right. And so so there's a serious risk of, I mean, if, if you touch that metal with your bare hands, you will burn your fingertips off. It's ironic using the word burn, but that's, that's basically what happens. And so this simple task turns into this Herculean task. And so... And setting up the telescope every day and taking it down and setting it up and taking it down became a series of these Herculean events. And just when when you got into a flow and you figured out the right way to do everything such that – and it's, it is just so entirely different from the way that you would do it. Like if I would go to walk outside my house right now in Southern California and set up a telescope, it's just entirely different. you got to think 14 steps ahead, right? Because, for example, you forgot something. It's a half a mile walk back to the station in negative you know negative 70 plus wind and then a half a mile back, by which time your whole equipment is, is sitting out there by itself. So uh, when you cue everything up and do it right and pull it off and you walk back inside the warmth and you take off your jacket and you turn on the computer and everything's working, it is just a huge <laughs> – like, like, like I, I remember there were times when I, I worked in this little building called Superdarn, which is about half a mile out from the main station by myself. And I would just sort of like raise my hands in the air and look around. Like, come on. Anybody? Anybody? Round of applause. That maybe. was amazing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, the best moments while conducting research are where just things click, you're in a rhythm, and, and, and it works out, and you just feel, you feel like you earned it. Conversely, the worst moments are probably when when you just don't know what to do next. In the normal world, you would maybe go on the internet and Google around for something, but you got to wait for 10 hours for the satellite to be up. So that's not an option. Uh, maybe you'd yell down the hallway, hey, hey, can, can, can you come help me with this? So you've worked on this sort of stuff before. Just take a peek at it. Nope, well, that's not an option. And you just sort of, you feel like you've tried everything that you know how to try. And you just you feel like the day is, is is wasted, right? Every day at the South Pole is like like money, like currency, right? I mean, it is, like the, the National Science Foundation is paying actual dollars for you to be there and every day is time that you don't have. And so one of the big challenges I think that, that I faced there uh, was just owning up to the fact that, yep, I'm a team of one and nobody's gonna figure this out for me and I gotta figure it out myself. And so sometimes that can be tough and and challenging. And then you look out and there's nothing to the edge of the horizon. There's no help coming. And the weather forecast for tomorrow is supposed to suck. So no astronomy possible. So it's like, well, I've got two hours to figure this out and I have no clue. What do I do? So, but again, that's one of the great challenges, right? That's what makes that victory again so sweet is when you figure it out and you make it work then it's, uh, it's a huge win.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned it beforehand. Now that you have found out a lot of that stuff, your team should hopefully be better off, but that's challenges you would never consider at most other places, unlike it's space, like you
1: mentioned, somewhere that's uh, kind of relatable. Right. I, I don't know that firsthand, obviously, but yeah, I. that's exactly how it feels.
0: Yeah, and uh, a final fan question we had then, um, one we kind of asked you beforehand, but I'd like to see uh, the response here, is um, out of uh, the wildlife there, animals. Like, what kind uh, of cool uh, animals you get a chance to see? At the South Pole... Absolutely
1: nothing. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. I mean, there is no food. There are, there is no wildlife. It is, it's, uh, it's hundreds of miles of flat plateau and blowing snow before you get to the South Pole. It's simply incredible to me that we can maintain a scientific, uh, ha- a human presence this far from civilization. So there, there is, there is no wildlife at the South Pole except for you know these crazy humans that are, are running around there for some that reason. counts. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, but down at McMurdo, ah, I got to see uh, kind of the three major wildlife species in Antarctica. Period. The first are <laughs> penguins, of course. Nice. Uh, got yeah, got to see penguins up up front, up close and personal, and then seals, and seals eat. Penguins. So, you know, of course, where there's predator, there where there's prey, there must be a predator. And so we got to see seals. They would come out of the sea ice and sort of sunbathe on the icebergs. So that was pretty cool. Uh, and finally, uh, the third species was skua. And skua are these awful, clever birds. They're, they're huge. Yeah. And, and they just. I don't know where they come from or what they live on. I'm sure a biologist could give you a better answer. But but basically, if you get a plate from the cafeteria and you walk toward your dormitory with it, the scua will come out of nowhere and basically dive bomb you and smash into that plate and (laughs) scatter all over the ground. And then like five other scuas will come in and just, you know. Eat that, eat all that up while you cow in fear. And yes, uh, that's like horrified. Yeah, oh, they're they're organized. I'm telling you, there's there's some real there's some real mafia stuff at work there. So the skuas, the penguins, and the seals, and and you know, the humans. Who, boy, let me tell you, there are some unique individuals down there. <laughs> <Okay>. So at <laughs> least right. three out of the four were great. <laughs> and then the skuas. No, no, four <laughs> out of four were the wow. Well,
0: yeah, the skuas. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it makes me think of seagulls because I have a family that lives near the coast and I've seen them do some, not quite dive bombing, but pretty close in terms of stealing food.
1: Fairly aggressive. Yeah, you start to work <laughs> in mean, Antarctica. You got to do what you got to do.
0: And uh, kind of rounding things up here then, would you recommend for the people to, if given the chance, to visit McMurdo Station or visit the South Pole if they had the option?
1: Absolutely. If you want a perspective on human endurance, The ability that we have to turn something, nothing into something and just an amazing thirst for knowledge. Go to Antarctica and the US Antarctic program is incredible. It is set up to foster basic research for humanity's benefit in one of the most hostile places on the planet. And to see that, and better yet, to be part of it is incredibly inspiring. And so, uh, you know, even secondhand, just watching that, what people go through to learn more about our planet, and 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 try to figure out these really tough puzzles that can't be solved anywhere else on the planet, it's inspiring. And apart from that, the the people are amazing, right? So is what I'm saying that that you're not going to meet these people at a bar or you know da- living down the street from you because they're off. In crazy places doing crazy things. And when you're one of those crazy people with them, I think it, it really inspires you. Yeah. Uh, it's art of the possible. So, and then apart from that, just to see this barren landscape. I mean, I, I can't, I don't know if we will get to the surface of another planet in my lifetime, but boy. If you want to know what that feels like, I imagine Antarctica would not be too bad a place to start.
0: You're right. It's almost like going to another world. So that's fair. The ice planet Hoth came up a lot. <laughs> I could totally imagine that. So um, uh, the final question we've been asking a lot of people just to get a good feel. What would you say is your favorite invention from the Air Force as a whole if you have one?
1: I, okay. So I'm sure that there's, there's several answers that I could give you to this, but I'll just – I'll give you the one that I think is most Antarctica-related. How about that? Yeah. So – the Air Force runs the airlift mission uh, in and out from New Zealand to uh, Antarctica and back. So it's Air Force C-17s that do the run between intercontinent and then on the continent it's LC-130s and Twin Otters. And I got to say, uh, <laughs> it is amazing to me how much these planes can carry and get off the ground and get somewhere safely. So as you head to the south of the world, all those lines of longitude start to converge on each other. So ma- navigating with a compass is impossible. So if I stand at the South Pole, every direction is going to show me north. Oh, on my compass. Yeah. So it makes navigation crazy hard. And the Air Force and the Navy uh, before it have perfected the art of navigation with GPS. So first, the small answer is GPS. But second answer is these... Herculean airplanes. And it's kind of a pun because the Herc is the (laughs) C-130. But yeah, uh, these planes do amazing things and they can land on ice. They can land on snow. The, The pilots are incredibly skilled and they carry hundreds of thousands of pounds, millions of pounds across the year in and out of Antarctica to help this mission happen. So I would say my, my favorite invention, I'm you know part of test pilot school, part of my job is gonna be testing these aircraft of the future, and this is part of the reason why I'm just really excited to do it, because I got to see them in action. These incredibly outfitted airplanes, the C-130 was built with something else entirely in mind, and then they said, well, can we support Arctic operations? Yeah, absolutely, let's adapt this plane, let's put some skis on it, let's give it some cold-proof equipment and let's send it in there and see what happens. And that's how our Antarctic program thrives. So my favorite invention of the Air Force is uh, GPS and these incredibly flexible uh, and helpful cargo airplanes. Absolutely, to make sense for
0: your mission. So that's yeah. an excellent answer. Can't do without it.
1: Sweet. Um. So before we wrap up
0: here, then, um, is there any final words you'd have for a people um looking to not only just maybe work in Antarctica, but maybe just uh, going into career field and trying something uh, challenging or something new,
1: like you did? Advice I would give to others is uh, you know get educated and keep getting educated opportunities emerge when you keep widening your knowledge base. I started off as an aerospace engineer and went to Antarctica as a planetary scientist. And also, you know, don't listen to the naysayers. There's many, many, many unique opportunities, but you got to work for them. And I'm very thankful for how unique my career has been. But uh, I think I owe that uniqueness to being able to take a whole bunch of no's and keep going until I found a yes. So if you search for people that understand and share your passion, get good advice, then I would say anybody can do it. Awesome. Sorry, I was just writing that down. That was a good quote. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
0: So um, thank you everyone for listening. Um, If you want to look at Captain Michael Nyack's blog, just go to uh, www.michaelnyack.com slash blog. If you want to see more on when the podcast will be coming out and keep up with Lab Life, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And uh, make sure just to stay curious.
1: Logging off.